the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hey pod people, Engineer Adam here, jumping in for a quick second to let you know about the brand new all-in-one platform for all of you creative podcasters out there. Anchor makes it easier than ever to make a podcast. It's free to use and has all the creation tools you need to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Plus, Anchor will get your podcast set up on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are found. Even better, Anchor helps you connect with sponsors, even if you're just starting out. It's the perfect choice for podcasters, so make sure to check it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Back to the show. The Star Wars universe is constantly expanding. But how the heck are you going to keep tabs on it without a holocron? And where in the rim can I score the juiciest news and rumors? Ah, you seek State of the Empire, Consequence of Sound's Star Wars Speculation Podcast, where we look for news in Alderaan places. We dig into the Sarlacc pit of the internet for the hottest intel in the galaxy far, far away. Make Indiana Jones inquiries and keep watch for the latest on Willow. Find us on consequenceofsound.net or wherever you procure fine podcasts. It's the show you're looking for. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to this week's episode of This Must Be The Gig. I'm your host, Leo Phillips. And for you pod people out there, if this is your first time tuning in, where have you been? No. Welcome. Step into my office. You aren't fired. Welcome. You're hired. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hi, Adam. Oh, hey, it's Engineer Adam. Hey, here. hey, hey. Hey, I was just yeah, giggling yeah, at you yeah, being yeah. funny. So let's tell you a little bit about the show. If this is your first time, I'm not mad at all. If this is your first time, I'm excited for you. It is a little bit of a backstage pass to the world of live music. It's the ins and the outs of the process via interviews with legendary artists and also set designers, choreographers, and more. And you know what? After this episode, make sure to go back a few weeks and just binge, Netflix-ish binging, the countless stories about that one gig that has changed people's lives and find out which song they chose, which venue it happened at. Because I always want to know, what would you note as the most memorable live performance of your life thus far. Not only that, rate it, review it on iTunes, subscribe, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Megaphone, iTunes. Anywhere, everywhere. You've got anywhere, so many everywhere. episodes 
ready and waiting for you. This is a beautiful moment for you in your life. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> At TMBTG Pod. Ping. So it really has been such an incredible journey so far. And this week's episode is, uh, what is another word for special? Incredible. No, we said incredible. Vehemently wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. There are really a few names that carry the same weight and power and enigmatic beauty as Johnny Marr. If he had merely been the co-songwriter of all of those heartbreakingly perfect songs by the Smiths, that'd be enough. That would be enough to make Johnny one of the all-time greats. But of course, he did not stop there and went on over the decades since to lead a diverse and no less legendary career, including, but I'm telling you, certainly not limited to, some session work for bands, let's think, ranging from Talking Heads to... Pet Shop Boys. Everything in between. Leading also his own band with Johnny Ma and the Healers. And wait, didn't he also... What about Modest Mouse? And the Cribs. So much more. He is at once elder statesman and living, breathing, vital element of newness. A hero who really stands tall in the spotlight and yet somehow also fills in all of the margins with greatness. Uh, Johnny recently released his third solo album called... Call the Comet, an ambitious and diverse batch of songs that really do rise, soar, and roar. That's a good way to describe it. In it equal is, measure. It is a majestic set of tunes, let me and, tell you. And also, it's also powered by one of the most important guitarists of our time. And I have, I feel very proud to say that, that he is on our podcast today. Add this to the list of legends on This Must Be the Gig. To the list of legends. Thank you again, Johnny, for doing this. We spoke um, while he stood on the rooftop of his own recording studio, which is kind of a fitting place for a legend at the top of his game. That's a good line. I mean... How do you do it? How do I do it? Just off the dome. Just just off the dome. <laughs> we off the top of my dome. Anybody 90s fans will know that. Um, so this is me and Johnny laughing and living through more laughing. <laughs> no, he has the best stories and I will not tell you anything, but they do include some superstitious little rituals that he does and he lets us in on. So enjoy. I'm actually on the roof of the studio in just outside of Manchester now. Oh my god, <laughs> that definitely is a quiet spot. I'm sure a good bird's eye view at the top. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think there's any aeroplanes going over or anything today, so it's okay. At the start of this, I wanted to obviously congratulate you on your new album and how wonderful Thanks. it is. I love that it's out in the world and it's part of now your your catalogue, which is. I'm sure a relief for you as well to be able to go out and play these songs live. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's uh, that's well put. It is a relief that it's uh, out mm. to the world. Uh, it's very gratifying. Um, mm. People seem to like it. I felt it was good when uh, when it was all finished, and um, I, it does feel like uh, the the uh, the shows now have gone up. 
uh, a few levels, uh, which which is mostly because of the songs. I, I really love singing these songs. You know, me and the band have got three albums uh, to draw on of our own stuff, and then I've got some of the things from my past, of course. So mm. uh, it feels like it feels like a good time. But you know, the record was something I didn't really think too much about when I went into it. I went into it kind of. Uh, with a very strong feeling, uh, but I didn't have a plan for it. But quite quickly, by following my feelings, a certain kind of um, musical need was fulfilled, and that was a feeling of escape. And people seem to have picked up on it. About halfway through the writing, or five or six songs into it, I felt that I was making a record about escape, and that maybe people would feel that way when they heard it, and that it would provide even if it was just entertainment or some yes. interest or, or just a good listen, you mm. know, even if it wasn't, wasn't particularly profound. But it's, it's turned out to be the way I hoped mm. it, it was received. I yeah. love that you said that obviously whilst recording as well, whilst you're in it, you you starting to create the narrative for it as well. Because so often I find I speak to so many people and I have for years and, and their process is obviously completely different. But I love that whilst you were in the studio, the album almost grew legs and became this whole other thing or at least showed more meaning than you maybe have initially intended, which I think is really special you know to to go through that yeah yeah that was a nice part of the, that was a nice part of the process i often um like to know what i'm doing before i go in there or have a sort of 80 percent kind of uh, concept in a way or, or yes. a, a, an expectation of what it's going to sound like that might be that it sounds kind of something might be dreamy mm-hmm. or that something is kind of aggressive or usually something is going to be like a real banger mm-hmm. on the stage or something like <laughs> yeah. that but, but it felt very personal called upon it it felt like mm-hmm. I needed to explore how I was I was feeling I needed to explore it through music and mm-hmm. uh, it was nothing to do with the record company or nothing to do with, you know, any kind of career uh, sort of strategy or anything like that. It, it was very personal, uh, but as always, uh, you know, I, I, have, I, uh, I do feel like uh, there's an audience, uh, uh, an audience out there and mm-hmm. with each, of the solo records now, it feels like me and the audience have got a kind of... um, A camaraderie. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a natural thing, especially considering how much you've been able to do. I know that people always say like, oh, you know, you've been around and it's been three decades. And But the truth is, is that there's other artists that don't achieve nearly as much or as, you know, with an iconic... A time stamp or stamp that you have, you know, so it's natural for your audience to slowly build. And I think that those are the ones that last the longest. Even when I sort of take time out to do movies or if I yes. go on the road with Hans Zimmer for a few months, I always feel like that's all part of my sort of collective work, really. I don't see, uh, I don't see it as being a detour from you know, the day job, I see it all as being the same thing. If I do a project with with Maxine Peake, uh, the actress, that, like I did, you know, before Call the Comet, where I did this little film and um, a track with, with, with Maxine, I see it all part of this, 
all under the same roof of what I am really in. And now I feel that my audience who are with me, they they like that I do those things. They like that I do the movie soundtracks and that, that I do collaborations or maybe work with different musicians. It's, it's part of, I, I'm not just, a, I don't just do the one thing, although my solo work with this group is, is definitely, um, you know, my main, my main job. But uh, the audience now almost expect me to, uh, kind of not stay on the straight and narrow record after record they, they expect a little bit of kind of diversity in what in my work I think I don't know how you are as a fan but I'm assuming that you feel the same way toward your idols you know you don't want them to change the way that they are putting out music or change the nature of their songs but you certainly want them to be having as much fun and experimenting as possible you know that's a good point because um, I've over the years, uh, try to maintain my enthusiasm for yes. uh, the people that I was a fan of. Because I think that's terribly important, and it, it's a nice passion. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a nice interest. And, and so, for example, a huge, huge influence on me as a as a youngster was Patti Smith. Oh, and, oh gosh. Um, yeah. And, and the fact that that she now in her maturity is writing books mm. is is of interest to me and and i always wish wish her well and wanted to do well and try and get out to see her or similarly the guys from wire when they reformed i thought oh right okay the world is now a little bit better because wire <laughs> <has> reformed <laughs> of course because it feels like everything's in its right place being a fan even you know, in, in an in a, a more mature way and an appropriate way, I think it's terribly important. And being inspired by the example of people that you admire. Mm-hmm. So as I've got older, I, as I've got older, I, I have related more and more to people in the visual arts. You know, people like Lucian Freud and Tracy Emin. You know, I because I tend to approach each day as a working musician. I never really fall into these things of, oh, in two months' time, I need to get the band back together. I, yes. You know, and in the, in the intervening time, I'll go and sit under a palm tree or whatever. <laughs> I can't even, I, I, I'm not yeah. judging that. Just that, just yes. that for me, I, I kind of work, I kind of work is on, an ongoing thing for me, whether mm. it's writing songs or recording or playing with other people. So that's why over the years I've tended to see or relate, relate to visual artists who do the same thing i've got a few friends a couple of friends who are one's a sculptor and one's a painter i've got two friends who are painters and to them it's inconceivable that they would go away for four months and or a year and not do any work not do the work yeah i think that that's a misconception maybe that people feel especially because of the cycle is so grueling you know you hear bands and you've done it as well you're on tour all the time it's non-stop you know, it's it's kind of void of reality, really, because your touring life versus your normal home life is so drastically different. And then people think like, oh, well, of course, between the times, you're not going to have anything to do with music because some people, I suppose, yeah. in the past have called it painful. You know, they don't want to be near it. But you're a fan at the core of it. And that's what I'm hearing, which I think is completely different to... You're a fan of art as well, which is completely different to somebody who does view it as just their job. Yeah, no, I understand that. I mean, I I, um, I can imagine, um, not for me, but I, I can imagine that, that alternative 
a way of existing that you mm. describe, and in some ways, in some ways, maybe that's healthier or I don't know about it's more. It wouldn't be more productive for me, but the difference with with me is that my home life and mm. private life, such as it is, has always been in the service of right. being a guitar yes. a guitar player. So up until recently, my my house was. A recording studio. It wasn't like I had a studio in the house. It's more like me and my family. My kids grew up Wait, living in a, resi- <laughs> in, in, in a residential yes. studio with, like, with oh, all these that. bands coming and going. Yeah, that, it, it was something I always wanted. It, it was something that me and my wife, who was my girlfriend from, from being a teenager, we mm. we oh, that wow. was the kind of life we wanted to we wanted to follow. Really, that's kind of just a continuation. And in, in that. In that way, mm. I am. You know, I like to be. Um, I like to click uh, with the modern world, and I, I, I you know, I, I'm very aware that it's 2018, and there are lots of things I like about the modern world. But in mm. many respects, uh, as I've got older, I realise that you know, I have lived the life of what used to be called bohemian. Yes, and, <laughs> the and, inverted commas bohemian. Yeah. Yeah, and I brought my kids up the same way, you know, mm. and there was times when my kids were, were going through things at school or with different interactions mm. that they were going through when I actually reminded them, well, that's, that's weird. We, you know, we are different because we are, we are bohemian. And there are times when, um, you know, mm. I have to stand behind that. And, and um, I hear people using the term creatives now, whereas, yes. they used to, whereas they used to use the term artist. Why do you think that is? I think terminology does adapt with, with the times because, I don't know, maybe photographers or designers, the, dig, the digital revolution has created a whole load of subsets of artistic endeavor and um, self-employment, which is all absolutely fine. It's just all part of the evolution of it. I'm not really ready to let quite let go of the, mm. the idea of the, bo- the bohemian because I think particularly in this day and age, you've still got a lot of things going for it. I mean, William Blake was a bohemian. Yeah, but in what sense do you feel like your life is, is in that way? Is it your mindset? Is it the way that your family and you interact is it the way that you see the world? Well, I'm very lucky. Uh, I'm very, very fortunate because from because I've never had a real job, uh, and by real job, yes, I used to work. <laughs> I, I, I used to work in clothes shops and I used to work very hard. But mm. my 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 choice of working in clothes shops quite obviously was because it was a good occupation and mm. endeavour for a musician a musician in waiting. And the mm. shops I worked in were very were very artistic and kind of hip, um, mm. you know. So uh, from being 15, 16, um, the times I grew up in, say, uh, or came of age in, say, late 70s and mid-70s, um, commerciality was actually scorned upon. Part of being into rock music, as it was then, uh, and then moved into punk rock, was that the commercial world and commercial endeavours were kind of not cool, really, and materialism wasn't wasn't cool. So this is pre-80s, and, you know, things that, your values that go into you kind of stick with you, and to me, that was that idea of non-commerciality or, or uh, I, get, well, I guess... Uh, integrity, musical, mm. uh, musical integrity being 
more core. important than, yes. than selling out. Yeah. I mean, as a, as, a, as a fan of music and the arts, I actually really like it when both things come together, when commerciality and, right. and, 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 and an interest in mind when they both those things come together, I think that's when pop culture does a really, really good job. Mm. When you know, it's when someone say in my in my field of work uh, in music, say a, a David Bowie or a Pet Shop Boys uh, or yeah. you know, or, or the or the Smiths, people with mm. a good, slightly subversive or challenging ideas get into the mainstream. I think that's fantastic. Absolutely, into into the heart of it. The, I mean, you just mentioned obviously the Smiths and Pet Shop Boys and Bowie. Those things are like a verb, you know. It's like part of of the lexicon, you know. But then, so how do you think that affected the choice of of music that you started to really listen to? Like taking me back almost to that sixteen or seventeen year old working in the clothing shop. How do you feel like that affected what you listened to? Or, or what did you even listen to at that age? Oh, well, because that was the late 70s going into the early 80s, uh, it was a, a, a very uh, fertile time or interesting time. I suppose, that, you know, all of these things are subjective, I guess. But, uh, uh, you know, well, for me, that it was about the sort of nascent stirrings of what then became indie. So, you know, there was... There was there was bands like like as I say Wire and there was Television and the Cramps and Iggy Pop and before that Patti Smith the only ones the Psychedelic Furs early the early Cure the Birthday Party these are all groups that were putting out their first second third records in the in the early eighties that was before I formed the Smiths at sixteen so I was really like a sponge going to see these bands before that I'd. I'd sort of started taking my, what I do quite seriously, um, taking myself seriously as a kind of songwriter and trying to, you know, really try and, and visualise being in a good group. I didn't really feel like a child at 15 by then because yes. I always hung out with older people. I, I was I was a child, but I was trying to compete with those guys. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and I was in hanging around with a lot of adults. So I was really soaking up what all of that meant and and really uh learning so much uh well i stopped going to school when i was 15 yeah i stopped going to school when i was 15 about oh, 14 wow. i started taking time out but i would go to the library and read the music press and i learned more from patty smith interviews and david johansson interviews and uh all these articles from people that i liked uh, about culture mm -hmm. and then you know i learned all about William Burroughs and Ballard and uh, Aldous Huxley and things that I later went on to really cherish. I learned really from pop culture. You know, I was really uh, a student of of the culture that I wanted to be in. I wasn't just like wanting to be in a band to yes. wear sunglasses and <laughs> and kind of and get rich. Jiggle about, I yeah. Part of, it. of course. It was just, it was an entire lifestyle. And I think that comes back to this, you know, when you have children and you have values and the world's reflected back at you through your kids and stuff, you know, realizing, oh, no, well, we do live a certain kind of bohemian lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I think events in the last two or three years, political events and the sort of oh, political position yeah. has made me, made me kind of appreciate those values even more you know rather than i like to think that i'm able to adapt and that i live in the real world the modern world but uh, there's just something about 
this is as, as incredibly corny as this sounds, that the manipulation of people uh, via the media and right. social media and all of the, these things, that and the effects of of the uh, the success mm. of very very powerful agencies. Now, here's the corny bit. The corny <laughs> bit is that they can't control your mind. No. They, they can control how much it costs us to get on a bus or on a plane or our wages or our royalties or uh, they can control the input and a political opinion that we see through social media, mm. as we've seen with Facebook. And they can completely, you know, and when I say they, I do mean the Russian government and the American government and the, yes. and the British government and, and the controllers. You know, we, we can be directly at the effect of all those policies, which I believe are the result of the lack of the lack of democracy and the corruption of, of democracy. But they can't actually control your mind. And that is a very old school bohemian corny concept. And I think it's really important. I don't know if it's corny. I think that there's always this misconception about the bohemian lifestyle that you're totally devoid of reality and you're like thinking in a way that's totally out there. But the truth is, is that the only way to function in society is if you do believe in that. So that you can know that there's the government. There. It's not like existentialism where, you know, it's like it's not in front of you if you don't see it. But being, as you said, being aware that there is materialism, there is capitalism, there is a government, there's a lack of democracy. But then choosing what to do with it, I think, is the powerful point. You know, knowing yeah, that think, you have that power. Yeah, I, th I think what little, your little choices throughout the day are... Exactly, and your, yeah. Uh, and living, and living is a political act. Mm -hmm. And I, I see it, I see it in... Um, I see it in uh, really right across the board with so many young people mm. that I encounter. I get quite a lot of young fans at shows, and um, I'm sure. And yeah, and I know you know, and I, I interact with quite. A, you know, being a parent, I've interacted with the younger generation quite a lot, and mm. and um, the 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 uh, the choices that are being made, and the and the concerns of the younger generation really filled me with, with admiration. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, it's just something as, as, as now as, as obvious as LGBTQ rights, which has happened really quickly, um, too late, well, you know, slowly, but has, has been a rapid um, adjustment over the last seven or eight years mm -hmm. even. Is, in, is entirely down to the young generation. Absolutely. Entirely. Even with your latest album, there are, you know, darker undertones about all of this. And I think that there's a very, very uh, specific type of artist that can tackle that. You know, not everybody needs to. But if you're unaware of what's going on around you, that's really difficult, especially knowing where you grew up and knowing who you've been around all these years. It would be very strange yeah. if you were so closed off. So I was just thinking now, who was the first uh, artist then that you saw perform live? Absolutely. Well, I wrote my autobiography in... Uh, yes, in, in I love that. 20, in 2016. Mm -hmm. And in doing the research, I knew that I'd seen Rod Stewart uh, really early with, with my uncle. But I also had seen there was a local band in Manchester who became a punk band. They were called Slaughter and the Dogs, mm -hmm. and they were quite um, they were a notorious 
local band of kind of hoodlums, really, but they were pretty good uh, for a time. Before they changed to punk, they were the local kind of heroes. And I, so in writing their biography, I uh, went back and I got I had the ticket. Um, and um, oh, wow. it turns out I went to that gig on my own in 1976 and I was 12, vividly, I remember every second of it. And it, what really struck me was that actually that I went on my own and to check this band out and almost as research in a way because I started <laughs> kind of playing at 11 and and it was very violent I mean there were, those gigs were known for being violent and mm. it was absolutely astonishing and I stood sort of on the uh, on the periphery of the fray and um, and I remember uh, I, I saw I watched the whole gig and I hung around to sort of soak up the atmosphere afterwards and I walked I guess maybe the eight miles, nine miles back on my own. But the thing is, I realised I must have got in about after midnight anyway. Mm. And what struck what struck me about that was that my parents just let me do it. How did that? I was just thinking, how did your parents even firstly let you out the house at that age alone, and then also let you come back so late? Were they were they kind of confident that you just weren't gonna? I don't know, disappear or... Well, that was the start of me. They, they were... No, they were... Um, they... Because I was the oldest... I am the oldest of a Irish family and Irish descent. And and back then, particularly, there was a... There was a, a kind of a... There was a very... Uh, sort of trusting or... <laughs> loose... The parents were kind of loose about where I went, really. That's okay. it. That's the honest answer. And they, they sort of, uh, they were okay with giving me a hell of a lot of independence. I mean, that kind of bit them very quickly after that. That came back to bite them when I would disappear for, <laughs> for, for a few days. And then, and then Kate would I'm come sure. back with my eyes rolling around in my head like saucers. <laughs> I've in, ingested all kinds of substances. But, yeah. uh, and that's when... Then it started to cause quite a few problems, mm. but uh, but they were they just were really uh, loose with letting me go out and do my own thing, and it mm. gave me an amazing independence. I saw Patty Smith when I was fourteen. I went to that on my own as well, but the um, part of my playing out, and I was talking to someone, um, another musician about this in Manchester. Part of the kind of rite of passage for. Uh, mostly boys, um, pretty much exclusively boys in Manchester at that time, was to go and hang around the back of these concert halls and just sneak into what, whatever, <laughs> whatever you played. Yeah. So that was that's what I did. I was completely and utterly single-minded about being around rock groups and rock mm. music. That was it. So then, when you started playing live yourself, so you said that you started playing guitar when you were eleven. And then when you started yeah. playing live, was your first gig, what was your first band's name? Was it the Valentinos, the Paris yeah, Valentinos? Yeah, Paris, Paris Valentinos, yeah. I love that, that name. Yeah, well, it was, very, it was a very new wave. The new wave was kind of just happening then. And yeah. um, I'm often asked now, well, you know, how are you feeling about being a singer? You know, are you growing in confidence being a oh, front man because you were, you were the, the guitarist for 30 years? But you know what? In, in all honesty, nothing is quite as terrifying as mm. standing in a, a little school hall in front of 12 of your mates <laughs> who are just shouting yeah. shouting abuse yeah. and making, making fun of you. I mean, really, honestly, walking out to 
150,000 people at Glastonbury is a police compared to that. Yeah, having all your mates shouting that you're a total, total twat for being up there. <laughs> that must be crazy. <laughs> but yeah, so but was that, that your first, first one? Okay, okay. Yeah, my first few gigs were always in front of about 15, 20 people, uh, mostly my mates and my, and my sister's friends. The girls were a little more kind at I think still 14, maybe 15. I joined um, uh, joined a band called Sister Ray, who were a bunch of adults that had already made a record. And those guys were like, essentially, they were reprobates, really. Mm-hmm. And I, God knows why they, why they wanted me in the band because I was so young. Because even I was aware. I thought, this is like a freak show. <laughs> I'm just a kid. Yeah, <laughs> and they had a reputation so they drew an audience and that was a, a really interesting experience I figured it was all an apprenticeship to the real thing really and also just having I suppose you know people are so kind of they just are so focused on wanting to know about the things that you haven't done for all these years and the truth is is that when you are a guitarist and when music is in your blood singing or playing the drums or you know jumping from to different elements of art it, it's not easy but it's certainly within you already of course you're going to sing and when you sing it just makes total sense you, you have such a beautiful ear for you know pacing and your own guitar work so it just makes i think it just makes total sense thank you yeah well well i was the singer in paris valentino that, exactly. that's the thing I, yeah I, I was pushed pushed out to the front and the, the other thing about about what i'm doing with singing on my solo stuff now is is that um in a very very uh straightforward way i have have sat behind the console Recording singers from Chrissy Hind, obviously Morrissey, Matt Johnson, oh, Isaac gosh, Brock, yeah. uh, on and on and on, Liam Gallagher. I mean, I've sat behind that mixing desk while singers have been singing and you know doing different takes on records. And my my mindset was always the same. It was like, well, right, okay, is the job getting done? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, occasionally, occasionally your jaw would drop quite often you're in there making a making a piece of work and you go okay that that isn't quite right let's do that again or let's drop it to the third verse i'm a very you know i'm a working musician yeah yeah Yeah, and i've I've produced a lot of records so when i work on my own records i i do exactly the same thing Mm. you know i don't I don't go in the morning in the morning and, and light a load of candles and <laughs> meditate and, and wait wait for the solar system to be in the to, right position. To in alignment, I, I, yes. <laughs> yeah, I make a record mm. the same way as as I so I put myself in other words I put myself under the same scrutiny, and I'm 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 practical about it now. Occasionally, or as much as possible, when you're doing that. You, when you're doing that, you try to sing with emotion. You try to sing technically correctly. You try to all these obvious things like make the words be heard and make the tuning right, right. and your phrasing right. And they're all they're all technicalities that you try and bring, and you really try and be as motionless as possible. Uh, so of course I do that, but you know it's it's not that big a deal to me. I love singing. I love singing on stage, but I'm making a record, and I'm, it's all in the service of doing a song. Yes, in service of that work and that music. Yeah, so it's not mystical. It's not it's not mystical to me because I've been doing it since I was 16, 17. Now, 
However, along that process that I'm doing, much in the same way, if you just forgive my indulgence for a second, but much in the same way as a painter is slapping paint on a canvas, (laughs) when when I am doing my work, I am doing that, and then I will then step back, and sometimes, well, and often, I'll go, whoa, that's good. (laughs) Wow. uh, That's wonderful. Yeah, and that's that's when you know it's done. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine, especially also you've just mentioned, like, I know that you mentioned them quickly, but like, for a second, like Chrissy, working with Morrissey, but working with Isaac and all these different artists, you have allowed yourself as well to be so submerged into that world that you haven't been apart from it, really, for since you started. So since that you know, 13-year-old or 12-year-old went to that first show, it feels like it just hit you. And that was, you know, that was it. That You knew that that was what you were meant to do, which I think is such a beautifully rare thing. It's very, very rare um, to have, for anybody to have a vocation. You know, I, oh, I remember I was asked a couple of years ago uh, when I was doing a, a book talk, when we were doing this Q&A, a young girl, uh, 17, 18, uh, asked me about advice on how a struggling writer, which is, was essentially herself, what advice I would give her in terms of, because she was making so little money and it was so difficult to break through doing what she wanted to do. She obviously wanted to write. Yeah. And her question was, you know, what would be her advice? And she said, well, she said this question with real earnest and a sort of kind of real vulnerability. Mm. And I felt really a little bit, uh, maybe not unqualified, but I was quite, kind of privileged to be asked it. Right. What would be, what should she do? Um, because, you know, she's looking at a life of, you know, a, a life of uh, immediate future of not making any money, mm. not being heard, but she really wants to be a writer. She needs, she needs a job. You know, how do you pay your rent? All of that. And, as I say, it was a privilege to be asked that question, but it's such an important thing for somebody. Mm. And I found that I said to her, well, I actually think it's, if, if it is a vocation for you, and if you were that, if, if that's your existence, it, yes. and, that's your, and that's your identity, and that is your life force, you're probably better to be a really starving artist <laughs> than... Yeah. than and then a com- then a comfortable person working in a call centre. I I totally it, it, agree. I totally agree. That's often the scary answer. To be honest, people don't want to hear that. That you do you you do anything. If that is what you want to do, you will sleep on the street. You will do anything for it. I understand. I'm in a privileged position because things went okay for me. But I think more it, than know, okay. My, but yes, yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, but but <laughs> it, but um, but I think it's. If you are someone who's, if you having a vocation is so rare with young people these days. Um, and I know my well, my experience in the UK, youngsters, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, now they start so much pressure on themselves to get into the right university and the right college in a way that was never the case when I was that age. Mm. And um, uh, working class people now have to go to university, which is a fantastic thing, but that's mostly to do with the economic um, the, uh, situation in the country, the way that universities right. and colleges are now are now a bona fide business. And, you know, the manufacturing industry and the crafts industry and all those things have changed in the United States and, and, and the UK and perhaps elsewhere in Europe. So um, most regular kids 
go to a university, go into sort of some other education after school of some kind now. And when they get to 16, 17, they, have, they put themselves, from what I've seen, under so much pressure and so much stress. It, may, it reminded me that my friends that I grew up with, so many of them, so many adults didn't know what they wanted to do until they were 20, 21. 20. And that's the way I think it should be. That's the mm, norm. Absolutely. Generally, people tend to fall into their their careers, you know, by happenstance or things things go one way and they get off of this job and they find get a feeling for it and all of that. And, you know, 25, 26, 27. So I always feel really sorry for the youngsters who are trying to kind of, who have this pressure to find their thing at an early age. That seems abnormal. But the flip side of that, which happened to me in a big way, um, is, is that when you do have a vocation, as I say, it is it's so powerful and so rare and I think so precious. I always try and, try and encourage it, you know, because mm. it might go away. Yes, exactly. That, that and, and also that's why, obviously, you know, your parents, I doubt, wanted to know that you were missing for a bunch of days. And that isn't nice to put anybody through that, especially you being a parent. I'm sure you'd feel the same way. But that is exactly yeah. what probably lent, let you down that path that, you know, knowing that you had that yeah. freedom, going back to the name of your autobiography, you know, set the boy free. It's exactly what you needed. It's, it's what you needed to do. But then so after Sister Ray, then going and obviously starting the Smiths and finding Morrissey and, and putting this band together. Do you remember when that first time was that you played? Was it in Manchester or do you remember when the first ever gig was? Yeah. Yeah, I remember it vividly. It was at a place called The Ritz, which is still open and which, in oh, fact, wow. is quite a, it's quite a prestigious <laughs> venue, The Ritz. Yeah, and it was all a bit of a it was all a bit of a ruse actually because our friends who were quite enterprising, uh, two of our friends put on uh, a sort of night of kind of this was around the, what was known as the new romantic kind of age. So everybody you know was dressed up in in togas and all this kind of finery, <laughs> uh, and they put on a, what was a, a what was called a they called a fashion show, which was. Yeah, it was local designers and our old friends modeling. And around around this fashion show, they put on a few bands and we were the first band on. But essentially, the night was really devised as a as a kind of showcase for my new band. Oh, wow. And, um, and we went on and we did four songs and we had Morrissey's friend as a go-go dancer. This guy, James Maker, stood in stilettos. Yeah. God knows why. God knows why he was doing that. <laughs> Were you just like, oh yeah, I'm going to go with this. This is great. I'm just yeah. Gonna... <laughs> I, I, I was. Yeah. I, I thought. Well, this is very exotic. I didn't yes. really expect it was going to last too long, mm. but uh, which it which it didn't. So we we did that, and I think because we were sort of a. I think even though we only did four songs and we were playing to the kind of very hip cognoscenti of Manchester, William Burroughs was on about, uh, he was about 600 yards in, a, in the Hacienda as it was then down the road. Oh, uh, wow. So most, most of the audience who we would have wanted to see us were watching William watching. Burroughs croak his way through. <laughs> Broke his way through through some narrative. Oh God, um, that's really why you had your go-go dance to, dance in stilettos and playing four songs. I love that. 
Exactly, yeah. But we arrived that night. We mm. arrived because people who, there was a lot of people who kind of knew that I was, you know, I was going to do something interesting. And partly they knew that because I'd been telling them that for about two years. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, you know, there was a few people around who were aware of Morrissey's reputation from the punk days. Yes. And so so we stirred up a little bit of attention. And, and, and the gig was, you know, if anyone's interested, you know, this isn't a shameless plug, but I, I do recommend that they borrow or steal my book and read the bit oh, about the... I was, um, I was just going to say, it's the, you have that whole bit in the book about it where you elaborate a lot. I think that... Well, for just also just reading your book, I don't think that that's a shameless plug at all. It's it's actually a, it's a necessary accompaniment to this, to this conversation, <laughs> I think. Just because your story well, is also about meeting so many different heroes and people along the way... Um, there's this beautiful humility to it as well. Well, I hope so. But what, why I was why I was mentioning that story was because actually that was one of the first. It was like the third or fourth thing that I wrote for the book. But I must confess that I did laugh out loud when <laughs> I was writing writing that bit about. Uh, and I thought, oh, this this book writing lark is is, is going to be quite easy. Mm. It wasn't easy at all. I'm but, sure. Uh, I'm sure. As you know, was there anything in your book that you, especially about the time between you know eighty two or eighty three and and the beginning of eighty seven? Was there anything in that space where you felt like it was too much to put in just for the sake of your own? Uh, creative process was there anything that you really just felt kind of bogged down by that you didn't want to you didn't want to lean into no I, I i kind of be honest if there was something that was hard to 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 write mm. and hard to process i just i just toughed it out for a few days mm. uh, and was kind of you know probably probably not much fun to be around uh, uh, I was stressed maybe, you know, things mm. about how to really um, fairly and uh, in honouring, not you know, the end mm. of the Smiths, for example, honouring what really happened in, and honouring myself mm. as well as the other band members. And also the reader, the thing about the book was that, uh, you know, I could have, it's, it's not really my style to kind of be you know, firing arrows left, right, and center. Of course, it's just not my real way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I did, but no, nor did I want to pull any punches because there's a lot of stuff that that's already out there. So I wanted to, but I wanted to honour. Uh, I just wanted to honour the memory of the band, and and mm. as I say, I wanted to honour the reader too by not being a real big moaner. You know, mm. I think uh, <laughs> because yeah. because there are some um, there are some autobiographies by by interesting people that I think have been just mm. spoiled because the tone it's the tone much. just reads like yeah. like therapy yeah it's like, it's like yeah it's like therapy it's like whoa I, I you know rockstar neurosis I think is, is quite unattractive <laughs> but especially because you also took it upon yourself to speak about a time which to be honest over the years Morrissey's really been the one to speak a lot about that time and or not at all you know, it's it's to the extreme, yeah. and so you've also been constantly asked questions about him, about his way of life, and I think to have your moment and have your version out there and have it not be 
about moaning about how difficult those years were or how difficult other people were is really refreshing, to be honest. Because any Smiths fan, you will ask them, they remember the music. Above anything else, they remember the music, exactly. you know? So whining yeah, exactly, about it is yeah. just going to taint. I mean, and you you weren't even together for that long. You had a career longer than you were with the Smiths. So, um, you know, the the rest of the, the, the fact that it made such an impact on the music yeah. landscape is extraordinary. It is extraordinary, yeah. It's unbelievable. Well, yeah. Well, I must, I'm often asked about how I feel about that. And in all honesty, it's beyond my powers of, of, of analysis. I'm sure. I, I wouldn't know, you know how. Yeah, I'm sure. So much of it's to do with culture and the way culture works. Yes. And, I mean, a lot a, a lot of it is like, yeah, hey, not everybody likes the Smiths and they didn't like it at the time, and that's mm. fine too. I mean, obviously. Mm. Uh, but uh, and, I, and I understand why, mm. um, you mm. know. But... Um, but for those who do get it and those people who like it, um, th- well, the tunes, were, the tunes are good. The the words are good. That we were a good idea. Mm. We uh, mm. were very very industrious. So there's there's a lot of really really good noble things went into the Smiths, mm-hmm. and that that was the thing that frustrated me for many years. That got sullied. By mm, the narrative, exactly, the of, narrative, yes, yeah, that, uh, that suited several people. The narrative it suited certain people who wrote books, and it, uh, it suited some people here and there. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear and, you, and, and uh, I really appreciate you saying it as well because it, it, it is mind blowing looking back at just you know just looking through your catalogue and the the work that you've done over the last year, few years it is mind-blowing how much you've done and I so often feel that people don't give you the chance that you need to you know say that wow those years were actually very formative to who you are now and they keep asking you when you're going to get back together and I think that uh, for me what I find most interesting is that it, it your output in that time was so large and it was only a couple of years and and that's that yeah, is that yeah. is fantastic like how did well, you even well, do that <laughs> you well, know as i say the, the as i say the underneath that narrative of subterfuge and arguments and negativity and difficulty and all of that there was a lot of nobility in in our behavior too and and Part of that is is seen, in, as you pointed out, in in the output. I mean, the 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 work ethic was very noble and and was very you know admirable. Uh, that didn't happen. No one made us do that. And I'm talking when I say we, I mean me and Morrissey, really. Uh, and the and the other two guys did it, but but it was us who drove it on. We were like, now let's do another single. Let's do another single. Let's do another B-side. Let's do, <laughs> to the point where, yeah. you know, where it got ridiculous at the end where we were like doing records before we even had the, the final album out. That was ridiculous. However, um, that, that work ethic uh, uh, was, was really up there and the, and the constantly raising the standard with every song or every album or every single or whatever. We didn't always hit the mark, but generally it was a trajectory that went upwards. Oh, gosh, was all, 
was all self it was all self motivated. We never had a manager sit down and tell us, right, now boys, you really gotta get it together. You've really got to go out to this house in the country and, and you know, we did all that ourselves. And that was purely to try and be great. It was all about wanting to be great. And um, you know, where I'm at now, I've never really strayed from that, I don't mm, think. You know, no. uh, sometimes but you can't uh, another thing I've often said though is that you can't compete with a myth. You know, there's so much mythology about that. So I would drive myself completely nuts, nuts. if if I was trying to compete with something that's turned into mythology. Because mm, uh, it is, never, you're right. I'd, I'd, yeah. Yeah, I'd never have I'd never be at a I'd never be at a plug a guitar in. But when I <laughs> write yeah. whenever whenever I write if I write writing something like the traces of the new album or if I'm writing actual tractor or walking to the sea, when I'm working on it, I'm just I'm just hoping to do something great. And I think anyone who's ever written a play or written a or you know, even a say a dissertation or um you know, or you know, try to do any artistic endeavor will know what I mean by that. When you're in it, you 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 you're just very subjective and you're just trying a some of it's craft, some of it's dire, some of it is working to a deadline and some of it is a work ethic, but you're always looking for the muse all the time and you're hoping to do something great. And in that moment, you become almost myopic. You are blind to your your past, you are blind to you are blind to needing to get out of the studio because you're supposed to be meeting someone for dinner. You're blind. I am anyway. I'm blind to all those things. And it's just the work in front of me is what I'm trying to hone. That's never changed for me. And the narrative is really out of my control. So when I make new records, say with the new records, you know, sure as shit, I think right now I think is the best thing I've ever done. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fantastic. It's your third now. And obviously after, you know, you mentioned Hans Zimmer as well. And I love that you performed with him also because so often musicians just get to be in the studio and kind of act as a, you know, a, an extra add-on session musician. And the fact that you got to perform together yeah. as well was so amazing. How How was that? Well, it, it was really fabulous because um, <laughs> one of the things that uh, Hans and I do for each other is we kind of egg each other on to. We, we we're, both of us are both of us are very good lateral thinkers, and um, Hans particularly. And we have these ideas, and we would just encourage each other to do it. They'll either be musical ideas or they'll be conceptual ideas. So in other words, uh, when we got together one lunchtime to discuss well, uh, the Spider-Man movie, which was we weren't yet to start on for, for several months, mm. the, the conversation went along the lines of, and said, well, I think the whole thing should start with you playing a, a big chord on the guitar. You need to bring it with this big rock chord. Mm. So then I... I naturally jumped to thinking about the who and then I thought yeah okay and then he was like okay but anyway two hours later we were both miming this air guitar and these drums <laughs> in this very very swanky restaurant yeah. and by the end of it we, we decided to get a group together which was me Pharrell Williams mm -hmm. Junkie XL and then an orchestra materialized before we knew it we had this huge big group playing live wow. and um which is fairly intrepid. And the, the other side of that is, um, to answer your question, is that um, I would and do 
often find myself dropping in on hands when I'm in the middle of touring and mm. he's he's it's always eleven o'clock at night, midnight, I'd nip down, see if he's still there. Of course he's still there because he's always never working. not working. <laughs> yeah. And um and we so we get talking and I'm in the middle of a tour but I've had a couple of days off so I'll land in LA or London or wherever he is. And um and then so the conversation will go where he'd be asking me about you know well how's your bus what's the bus like mm. oh yeah okay what's that venue like did you play in vienna oh yeah what's it have you played in the south of france well, what so after a while i started to say this sounds like somebody who wants to be on the road <laughs> he was saying i was saying why don't you do it he's going well look if i wanted to, this is the way it went he goes if i want to do the da vinci code if i want to do the dark night johnny i need 70 people on the stage to yeah, do that. I need a 30 piece true. choir. And I said, he needs an I orchestra. said, well, you, yeah, you can do it. Mm. And he was like, really? I said, sure, man. We did Inception. Come on, sure, you can do it. So he he's very uh, gracious in giving me, <laughs> yeah. he, he gives me the, cre- the credit for getting him out there on the road. And, and, he used to protest that he would be terribly nervous, but actually anyone who's seen Hans play those three-hour, epic three-hour shows, uh, he's a natural. The guy's a natural on stage. So uh, we kind of, we egg each other on like like friends should do, really. Playing Inception it, with a 70-piece orchestra behind me out in the open air oh in the south of God. France as the sun's going down was, was a moment that I realised it was a moment while it was happening. I did really think well Johnny boy it doesn't really get much better than this (laughs) (laughs) it's true though do you feel like that's one of your most memorable because I mean it's so difficult to I know quantify that one gig that really that you felt like you everything came together that one perfect gig but was there another show that you played that you felt you know this is just everything that you've wanted Perhaps even with well, the Smiths, or I don't know, with all the other oh, you know, yeah. artists that you've worked with, was there anything that really stands out? Well, that, you know, the, because it's 35 years now, there have been, and I've, I, I've since forgotten them, but ones that stand out, I guess, were there was a gig that the Smiths played in 86 uh, up in this little university, Salford University. It was a homecoming gig for us. We'd been we were really at the peak of our powers, so to speak. And it was a gig that was way too small for us. And I knew when we were playing it at the time, it was possibly out the best gig we ever played it. You know, we really were, were, we had the material and everything had just built up to this crazy sort of uh, pitch really at that point in terms of the fandom and everything. So, uh, yeah, that, that Salford university gig was particularly memorable. And when we played this gig, in London for this jobs for change in in support of the Greater London Council, that really was something. The first time we played Glastonbury because back then Glastonbury was, um, you know, it was this silly little hippie, yes. uh, <laughs> n- nothing of a gig. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, and we felt, I, you know, I remembered it, and it stood out for me at the time because it was we were so out of place. So there was plenty of. of times with the Smiths that I was aware right this is something's happening here and um, but and then they played a couple of gigs that 
famously at the Albert Hall that were really off the scale. And um, and when I played with my solo, my own band at Glastonbury for the first time, and you know, I, I <laughs> these grown men, these fathers with their children on their shoulders, were crying. You know, oh, wow. um, things like that. Yeah, you know those. And as I said, the, the stuff with hands because of the enormity of the music. Mm. You know, and I played. I have to say, you know, the, the risk of being a big old softy. I played me and hands. My son. Uh, went on the road with Hans because he's a good guitar player, my son, and he, he went on the road. Oh, wow, I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, he did that l last year, and w we played at Radio City, and uh, that was the two of us playing together, and that was, obviously, for a, for me, that was a real... I don't know what it was like for my son. He probably <laughs> didn't care very <laughs> But for me, it was a big moment. I'm sure. Um, having your son right there with you, doing something that you that has been your life for so many years, I can't even imagine that how rewarding that must have felt. Yeah, yeah. he's pretty good. So uh, I had to be careful that he wasn't upstaging me too. So, which, <laughs> you know, he probably... He probably did. <laughs> oh, I hope he did. He's got to, you know, he's got to upstage the old man, you know. He's got to do yeah, it. Yeah, he's got to bring it. He's got to bring, bring it. it. Exactly. All the eyes on him. And so was there any a, a sort of moment where everything just kind of went wrong? Was there any, like, has that happened where things have gone so wrong where you're just like, oh, this is the worst show I don't need to even remember oh, this show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, you know, that really... Well, funnily enough, this run of shows that I've just played now, we mm. did a gig. The second show was in Dublin. And this was only a month ago. Mm. And um, mm. and uh, so the uh, I snapped a string, which never happens. And I did that in the second song. And, oh, and then, But towards the end of the show, uh, my guitar started malfunctioning. They started stop you know you couldn't hear anything and coming out of them so i swapped over obviously i've got a couple of spares i swapped over and then same thing out to another guitar and and then all my guitars but it turned out that the, the place was so hot and i was sweating so much the guitars would just had pools of water inside them oh my, my gosh there was nothing Whoa. that could be done and i don't because i you know like an idiot i ignored the fact that you really there's a reason why most artists have fans on stage you know yes, air fans yes but as you might know about me you know mm. uh, my haircut and my hairstyle is very important so fans <laughs> are kind of the enemy yeah it would um, be so strange if you had your hair just like flying past your ears your whole vibe it's it's very very polished it, it, well <laughs> so it so it now turns out that well i learned that lesson so, uh, so it was so hot in there. So that was only recently. Things can really go wrong. But these days, I kind of take it in my stride and I kind of make a joke out of it, mm. to be honest. You have to. Uh, you have to. You can't get, you know, you've got fans there waiting to hear your songs. And, and I know that you obviously have some Smith songs in, in, your, in your set lists as well uh, for your upcoming sure. tour in, in September. So people are like hanging on every thread waiting for you you know to deliver but i mean that that is a pretty amazing visual to know that like pools of sweat are like inside your beautiful you know, famous guitars uh, <laughs> yeah all of them I, I had three of them and oh, they all shit. cracked out so, oh my god but, uh, so i've had to learn how to fix that but when i was younger and as a lot of people might know in the smith days i used to get so stricken with stage fright Oh, uh, which wow. came out of nowhere. 
Uh, I know why. It's because fame was, was dropped on us so quickly. That was horrible. But these days, I'm way beyond that now. So if things go wrong, you know, you just kind of have to include the audience in it and make a joke out of it. I mean, luckily, me and my band are so together. The band is so, so happening that, uh, you know, without wanting to jinx it, I'm a little bit superstitious. But we kind of... Uh, we kind of get around those things. So how are you superstitious, especially because for some reason, I don't know why, but I felt like there there must be some sort of magical elements or superstitions that you hold on to after all these years of touring. And, and you know, there's so many elements that could go wrong that are out of your control. But so what, what are well, your different superstitions that, that you have to do while you're on tour to make sure that you have a good show? Well, there's just the one main one clear one that a lot of people, everyone around me knows that just will uh, will never go away and that's I have, I have to have a 20 pound note or a 20 dollar bill in my back right hand pocket oh my gosh that's amazing why that happened because when the smiths played their i, I want to say maybe ninth or tenth gig uh mm-hmm. in london at a place called dingwalls uh throughout the day i started getting nervous and i felt I, some notion came across me that I should be feeling lucky and that I should be feeling like I'm doing well. Mm. So, and, the, and because I was so broke in those days, I figured that, okay, I'm playing this show in London. Uh, it, it felt like a big show, even though it was only probably to about 400 people. Mm. So I said to my manager at the time, I need some money in my back pocket. And he, um, so he, he had a 10 pound note, which was, a lot, you know, fortune. And so it gave me a 10 pound note to make sure you give it me back. Anyway, we played this gig and it was one of the, up to then it was the best show we'd ever played. We had our first ever stage invasion and people were going nuts and it got really well reviewed and all of this crazy stuff. It was a great show. I walked off stage so confident and I was like, well, obviously it's to, it's because I had that 10 pound <laughs> note in my pocket. So because of inflation, uh, it's gone up to 20. <laughs> well, that, well, when I came to, when I was playing with the Pretenders and I was about to go on stage opening for you 2 at the Los Angeles Stadium with the, uh, with the Olympic torch going and oh, I want to wow. say 80,000, 90,000 people. Uh, I had the £10 or the $10 in my pocket and I went, man, that, this isn't enough money to get me through this. There's like 80,000 <laughs> people out there. So I, <laughs> I went to the store manager and I, mm. I said, give me 20 bucks. And um, and the show was great and I played really great. So from then on, I just kept it to a 20. Oh, that is so brilliant. I love that. I have so many different superstitions. My mom has Russian parents and uh, Russian descent. So they all, you know, like you can't put shoes on the bed or like uh, tapping the plane, oh, yeah. airplane before I get onto an airplane or... But the one that my mom used to say was, if you sing before seven, you'll cry before 11. So <laughs> I think that was because she didn't want us to be singing early in the morning because she had a headache or something. I've never heard that one. I know, it's so strange. But I, I have so many different superstitions that I only realized later in life. And slowly they've just been building. And I just, this I have such a soft spot for them because it really does make you who you are. I think rituals are important. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think rituals are really nice, you know. They're a nice thing in, in the world. I, uh, I, no way would I put new shoes on the bed. 
No oh, way. never. No way. I, I never, I would never do that. I never even put normal shoes on the bed, like old shoes. Yeah. I won't even have it near no. there. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know, you've mentioned, again, all these incredible artists that you've managed to have around your orbit all these years, and they've had the pleasure of working with you as well. But if you could really set up that perfect gig with, you know, all the right ingredients and all the right moving parts, where would that be? And I suppose, when would it be? There's a place in called um, the Santa Barbara Bowl mm-hmm. uh, in California, obviously. that I, I just always enjoyed playing there. Modest Mouse played there a couple of times. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Red Rocks in a way, I guess. But um, I always enjoyed, I always had good gigs playing there. So I'd like to, Oh, you know, or maybe you know what? No, I'll change that. Maybe the, the okay. Manchester Apollo, oh, the Manchester yes. Apollo, has got real resonance for me because I used to go there as a child, and it's one of those rare places that is still there. It's the old, it's an old theatre from the 30s, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's got a real vibe. And um, I, I guess you know, I'd be there, and I'd have uh, probably have Jeremiah Green on drums from mm. Modest Mouse, I think. And I'd have Matt Johnson, I think, on second guitar. Oh, amazing. Um, I'd have David Byrne probably singing lead vocals, I think. Um, And um, let me see, you know, I'd have maybe Eric Judy from Modest Mouse on bass. And um, I don't really want to leave anybody out, but, you know, it so has to happen. I'd maybe have, um, you know, Gary John. Yeah, this is just a, a... A pretend moment. The pretend. Yeah, I'd have, I'd, have, I'd have Gary Jarman from the Cribs come on and sing a couple of real rockers because he's got an amazing voice, and I'd have Neil Finn singing a couple of songs on, you know, on a piano. What his piano songs are so amazing, and mm. you know, and maybe Ed O'Brien from Radiohead on guitar too. So I've got. I've, I've been so lucky with so many friends. and um... You have, and it's just especially being able to, you know, we also, I didn't mention even, you know, working on electronic as well with, with Bernard from yeah. New Order. That was also incredible. And, and gosh, there's so much that you've done. Do you feel like yeah. there's still, because obviously you've got your, your, your tour coming up now in September, and that's going to be quite extensive. Is there still a place that you haven't been? I don't. I think that's probably a silly question to ask somebody like you. But is there still some place in the world that you haven't played or or haven't been? Sure. Yet? Yeah. Sure. Well, I've not played in Asia. I played in Korea, but um, I, I, you know, I'd like to. It, that sounds like a nice thing. I'd like to play in maybe. India or uh, Thailand or some of that, somewhere quite exotic like that, and um, you know, or you know, I'd like I'd quite like to play in Tel Aviv, which I know sometimes you have to kind of qualify that. But um, oh, uh, I, I just lived there for four years. I, I moved to America last year, but I'd been living in Tel Aviv. It is the most beautiful place. Uh, oh, one, thank one you. Of, yeah. yeah, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. So. And I know yeah, that like, they would go crazy for having you play there. They would just go nuts. Yeah. Well, that's why I want to go because I've I've, I've been asked by fans mm, so many I'm times. Sure. I'm sure. And um, I think you know I think that they you know uh, fuck politics. 
you know, that, that exactly. kind of gets in the way of so many things. Yeah. So, I'd, yeah, I'd like, to, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to play there. But, and um, I've got to say as well, I like, you know, I like mystery. I like uh, when I'm asked about collaborations in the future and, you know, is anyone I want to work with? I, I, I like that life is still mysterious for me, you know, and I, I don't know what's going to happen. And um, that really has a lot of charm for me because I never knew 10 years ago, I didn't know that, you know, Hans Zimmer would become like family to me and I'd be making movies. And uh, so, you know, I, I've no idea who I'm going to be working with next year or, I, you know, I, my solo exactly. my solo thing is, is the most satisfying right now because I get to, my own lyrical concepts and my own titles and all of those things but everything i've done is is uh because of following a musical notion from being from being a kid you know and i guess being a little bit intrepid as well <laughs> <laughs> but i mean do, do you especially with your with with singing your own catalog and having your own songs and as you mentioned having performed with hans zimmer and having that motion picture project in your catalogue as well. Are there any songs, even from the Smiths, or anything that you really enjoy playing live in you know, I know that you, you change up your set list often and you play a lot of a lot of your old material as well. Is there anything that you really love playing live? Yeah. Well this I love at this moment I love playing Last Night I Dreamt Somebody Loved Me, the Smith song because oh, that's my, that that, my favourite song we ever yes I think that's my favorite song we ever did but there's a song uh, electronic second single which was get the message we've yes. got a really spe special thing for me and um i'd uh, i'd really like to uh for us to include that song somewhere in the set i think we could do a good job of that oh absolutely especially because it kind of weirdly thinking about it now it really fits with your new album as well I think that it would, it does, it would, yeah. be, it would be such a great, I mean, it, it couldn't be on that album, but it certainly works as an accompaniment as well, a complimentary track. I definitely think that that would be incredible to hear live next to your, your yeah. current tour. It felt like a real special thing when we did it. And, and it's a song that absolutely doesn't sound like New Order and doesn't sound like The Smith. Yeah, which is, which is the beauty of a union, absolutely, where you create something completely brand new. That's right. That was a really good time. So we, we, we do, me and the band do a really good version of getting away with it because my mm. band is so good. Uh, and I've got Neil Tennant's blessing. He, he's done it. He's come and seen us a few times and he really likes what we do with that song. And Bernard Sumner sang it with us one time on stage. And mm. uh, so uh, that really, that all works. So, yeah, there's a lot of old stuff. I mean, some of the stuff, say there's a song, Slow Motion Replay by The Ver, which has got a big place in my heart because of the harmonica part I played on it. But, they're an active group again now, and it's Matt's baby. So I don't know how I feel about doing that because doing that's essentially, that, yeah, yeah, because that's Matt singing about himself, really. But yeah. uh, that's all um, okay. Yeah, it's all good. And just to to go back quickly, I wanted to know as well. You were talking about kind of having, we were chatting about having superstitions and rituals. I'm always often not so interested in the pre-show rituals. I'm actually really interested in what happens after a show. Like, what do you do after a show? Like, is there a particular thing that you like to do to get that energy out and unwind and kind of let it all simmer? Well, you know what? I fall into a mindset after shows that, particularly since I've been fronting my own band, that I 
never ha- that I never had anywhere else or or with any other band and and it's a state of it's pretty much always a state of absolute serenity and uh I'll go after the show what I like to do is be very very quiet and sit very 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 still whilst everything around me is really celebratory and not frantic but all the rest of the band and then when guests come and people are really celebrating and having a great time and of course if i have guests i want to see my friends who come see me afterwards but quite often especially when when i then get on the tour bus i just sit and i watch my band and crew making jokes and laugh and i'm (laughs) really quiet i don't i don't say a word which most people will tell you is very unusual for me (laughs) and um i think it's because it's the only time in my life when i feel like there's no work to be done I've done my work. Mm, that's and, really beautiful. I don't revel in it. I don't analyze the gig. I just feel like I just go, it's very meditative. And I just watch everybody else's joy, even if it's mundane, even if it's some Wednesday night in, in Montana and it's snowing outside and people are just talking. I just, I just, I'm like a silent witness, really. And I really, really love that. It's, Maybe it's something to do with all the breathing from all the singing in my show and I do a lot of jumping jumping around. But having that reflection is so important and also just getting perspective, as you said, not even being able to analyse it and just kind of feeling it in the moment. But it really sounds like you love touring and, and, and that you really do take to it very easily. Has it really always been that way, that touring has no, been such a natural never. thing? It never used to be that. It never used to be that way. I was terrible at it. I didn't like it. It wasn't conducive to my lifestyle. My lifestyle wasn't conducive to it. I was unhealthy. I mm-hmm. ran on really nervous mm-hmm. energy. I never slept. So I was ill all the time. I was like, I was so skinny and coupled with, you know, I used to be really unwell and, and nervy and, and just didn't enjoy it. And it was, uh, uh, and, and, but mostly it was because I was out of where I wanted to be because I wanted to just be in the studio making records all the time. I was that guy. And it was always, always the lead singer, quite rightly, who said to me, now, look, we've made this record. We can't just go and make another one. Uh, <laughs> we've got to get out there. Yeah. We've got to get out there and this is the fun bit. But to me, it was never fun. And then, and I guess particularly in from 2005, but maybe before that with the healers, 2001, 2002, I, I, don't, I don't really think it was anything to do with the fact that I was now the front man because that's, that's misleading because I think people may, may misconstrue that as being that, oh, now I'm getting all the attention. Me fronting the band is not, it's got nothing to do with me wanting more attention. Absolutely yeah. not. I don't, it, it's to do with, being in a certain kind of band and I have to deliver as the singer, there's no point in me giving my songs with my lyrics to some other guy from who the public have to learn to love. I thought, well, I might as well do it myself. So it's very pragmatic. And I'm not out there. as well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not out there to get more worship and I certainly don't want any more fame. But somewhere in my late 30s, early 40s, I started to really, maybe because my lifestyle changed, I started to really enjoy the travel and I I guess started to really uh, use touring. uh, It's like traveling around like a ghost, really. 
you know, because I actually started to use the time to read and and really fill up the well and get get all my inspiration up. And that time, that downtime, you see, because I don't drink, uh, so I don't go oh, to bars. Oh, you don't? No, I haven't. I, I haven't don't either. For... How long haven't you drunk yeah. for? About eighteen years. Oh my gosh! Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. You must be incredibly healthy. I know that I've, I'm only on six of like just cutting it out completely. And my life is unbelievably. Oh, well, well done. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't even think about it, to be honest. It's never in my uh, conscious. But I think that especially for you, as you are unbelievably famous, people want things from you all the time. You know, turning to something like that to escape is a very easy route and uh, an unfortunate aspect of the business. So it yeah, is amazing yeah. that you stop. Well, uh, for me, it's no, there's no absolutely no downside. I mean, you'd, mm. you'd have to put uh, a gun to my head to make me drink <laughs> alcohol. I'm just, I, I, I was, yeah. I'm just done with it. It's, it's not for me. It doesn't do anything for me other than make me a bit stupid or sleepy. <laughs> sleepy. So, or, yeah, so, it's true. It's true. So, so what do you, you use know, as your, like, vices? What are your vices in, in to, to kind of escape and get a little out of your head sometimes? Uh, meditation and... Um, yeah, I like to meditate and I like running. Running's my kind of my vice, really. I get out and particularly as I'm jet lagged so much of the time because of all the traveling. So if you wait, you know, instead of waking up in Tokyo really, really bored, like with nothing on the television and, you know, all of that business, um, I just get out and run around the city now. So that was another reason why I guess why touring became so good for me. You know, the, the whole thing about fitness is not to do with being puritanical it's got nothing to do with abstention i actually do it in the same way as i used to well as i do everything it was a, a way of my putting my foot down on the pedal more and actually being more progressive so i see i see not drinking and fitness and running as a way of me actually being a more radical musician particularly at my age I mean, I totally agree, especially because it's so tied into the rock and roll star, the rock star way of life. It's so tied into it that you almost have to be completely fucked and completely out of your mind in order to create something special. And the truth is, is that the rawness of not drinking or not doing drugs or not smoking or any of those things that are so toxic for you, that rawness yeah. is the real you that is exactly who you are at the core and that's the hard part you know that's the difficult way of life drinks drugs just become the law of diminishing returns after a while particularly alcohol and and, and also i just didn't i just didn't want to be a cliche as well i just didn't want to be that cliche <laughs> yeah. rocker musician i thought well now what i want to do is, is a bit more progressive than that and a bit more as i say radical i feel like what i'm doing is more radical so i, I sort of just jumped into that kind of obsessively and and i feel it's more progressive so but you know occasionally if i get the time i don't have any problem um in principle or or ethically with psychedelics you know i think hallucinogens are kind of all right you know it's all in moderation i suppose you just have to pick it and also what works for you i think that it's not a one-size-fits-all thing but I love that you said you didn't want to be a cliche because that is just the worst thing 
in the, in this business, you know, you never want to be that guy who's just like, oh, you know, he's falling off the stage or he's saying stupid things for the tabloids. It's just boring. Or turning up at his friend's shows and drinking <laughs> the rider in the dressing room. You know, that's really kind of tragic. Was that you? No, 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 no. But there are plenty, there are a few people still around who do that. You do that. Oh. So, uh, do, no, do I, you, didn't, I didn't want to be that guy. Do you think after like meeting and, and being around all these incredible and talented artists, has there ever been anything that somebody said to you that really stuck with you? Any sort of advice that anybody gave you that really resonated with you? Yeah. And it's a good one. And it's, you know, I mean, if I'm going to be asked, uh, you know, if I'm going to think about that, then it would, luckily for me, it was the mother load. It was Keith Richards. You oh, know? wow. Yeah. You know, Keith Richards very kindly took to me uh, around about the time, not long, be- well, not long before the Smith split and around about the time that, were, that, that there were cracks beginning to happen. And, and, you know, he told me I was cool. You know, he said, "Listen, you're, you're, you're," and I woke up the next day and thought, "God's told me I'm cool," <laughs> and and he was being very, I don't want to say paternal, but very, as I say, very kind. Mm. And we hung out a fair bit. Went through this period, this little short period, but we hung out every night for a while. And he was very candid about his life and the pressure he was under in the 60s mm. and, and the 70s and his working relationship with Mick Jagger and keeping a band together. And he told me that rock and roll wasn't worth killing yourself for, which was very gracious and considerate of him. Um, and I think he's right. But he, he pointed a way forward, which was amazing, I'll think of it, where he told me about philosophy about eating and energy and taking time to replenish and mm. revitalize your, your energy. He was talking about watching animals, watching the way cats uh, uh, take time to uh, regather their mm. energies mm. and uh, about, he had this whole uh, knowledge uh, about I guess biochemistry. He's a very well-read person, so he shared a lot of that with me. That really only made sense to me as a as a, a more mature musician. But it was incredibly prescient that he was telling some kid, because I was only a kid then. I would have been 22, 23. You know, there was a way to navigate being a rock musician um, by understanding your physical requirements and take, taking time out to replenish your energies. That was his main thing. I mean, that's incredibly powerful, especially considering how most people forget that it is your body that is needed to perform. You know, I think that people forget that the mind and the heart is all linked. You need to have a healthy body, you know, to play your instrument, to, and whether that is your voice or a guitar or a, or a drum kit. You know, you need to have that energy and feel a bit of humility as a human being that you have to take care of yourself. It was, you know, and particularly it comes from Keith Richards, who everybody would assume, you know, would, was just kind of sitting there, just, you know, shoveling, shoveling yeah. drugs in, into, <laughs> into himself. Yeah. It was, no, it wasn't, that, it wasn't that way at all. It was very, 
very ahead of his time and prescient and uh, I suppose it's kind of ancient wisdom as well really and what a nice like kind of stark uh, reminder to to know that even now you know something that you can pass along to your son and your your kids as well especially if they're in the industry which could get so tricky especially being in the industry as a as a new artist now yeah luckily they have you to guide them but oh my gosh i, I can't even imagine being a young artist in in this landscape, not not I'm not yeah, only talking about the political side, but the business side. No, of it's it. very yeah. very difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult in this day and age. I'm around a lot of young musicians. I try. I tend to try and uh, have younger bands from the younger generation opening for me. And um, the economics of being in a band now are very very difficult. Just something as simple mm-hmm. as where do you rehearse. Yeah. You know, and most of the yeah. rehearsal places now, unless it sounds trite, but it's that's I come from a culture of rehearsal rooms and trying to find these little places in town. Whereas now, really, most musicians, if they need a, a regular place to go, they have to join a music college and they, they, it costs them, what, 25 grand for three mm. years or something? Mm. No, there's so no support. Yeah. Now, unless you are supported. Uh, financed by your parents or are very connected it's difficult it's not really a working class pursuit anymore and i'm I, i'm sure you're grateful that you didn't have to go through that but you had challenges and 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 you know hurdles of your own in in coming from the age that you did you know you had your own sort of sort of hurdles for for getting further and and experiencing different things no i'm, I'm grateful I, I had a lot of hurdles because i had absolutely no money and i came from a, mm. a background where um you know to be even though well, even though my parents were absolute music obsessives the idea of me actually making a, a rock group that was going to be oh, very gosh. very successful yeah. was was a very seemed a very uh naive and uh quite a a reckless a reckless Mm. pursuit i Mm. think but uh you know it turned out and i got i got some help from some people along the way that's the thing you know yeah and i love that your parents were music obsessives as well what was what was playing in your childhood home like what do you feel like was the first thing that your parents kind of wanted to turn you on to oh the pop music of the 60s oh okay like yeah. the Hollies and the Four Tops, and, yes, uh, yeah. and all of that stuff that was going on in the sixties. And, and they brought with them, they brought with them from Ireland a lot of rock and roll. So I, I heard a lot of great guitars because a lot of that fifties rock and roll is obviously built on guitars. So mm-hmm. Eddie, Eddie Cochran, the Everly Brothers, which was a little bit of a misnomer in those days. It was a little bit out of time, but they were kind of they were almost retro. This Must Be The Gig is produced by Adam Kibble and we'd like to thank Billy Yost and the Kickback for our theme song, Rube, and buy their music at thekickbackband.com, Lexi Frame for the artwork, Daniel Brater and Dean Berger for the additional sound design, and the Consequence Podcast Network where you'll find a bunch of other amazing shows. Hey, if you've 
listened this far, why not go the extra mile and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Your comments provide valuable feedback for us and it helps other people find us too. For information on new episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at TMBTGPod. And generally, just irritate everyone you know about the show. Thanks again, and I miss you all week. Consequence Podcast Network.